0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: HRN is offering complimentary
2: business memberships to 50 Black Indigenous People of Color owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity. That will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org
3: B-I-Z.
1: This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks.
3: Immigrants from all over the world have settled across the American Midwest, so it's easy to focus on the influence of immigrant communities on developing regional foodways. But what about the impact of domestic migration on Midwestern food? On today's show, this is exactly the question we intend to explore. Specifically, we are taking a look at two groups that in some instances actually intersect. African-Americans and those migrating from Appalachia into the Midwest. When and why did these communities come here? And what food did they bring with them? Well, we're about to find out here on this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out with me, your host and tour guide, Capri Cafaro. To discuss how African-Americans have changed the Midwestern food landscape, I'm joined by Donna Pierce. Donna is the author of the syndicated column, Black America Cooks, was the assistant food editor for the Chicago Tribune, and is currently writing a book on Frida DeKnight, the first food editor of Ebony Magazine. Donna, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, you have so much personal knowledge, so much expertise, um, and so I want to just start off with maybe you giving our listeners, um, if you can, a a brief overview of the timeline of African-American migration into the Midwest. When did they come? Why did they come? I know that's a big question. And um, where did they come from Uh, uh, in the different regions of the country?
2: Right. Well, there was... um you know it's an amazing the whole migration story and it's often referred to as the great migration but the mm-hmm. migration itself you know there were early migrations to out of the south to uh california splitting between um san francisco and los angeles back in the um 4000 uh african americans from between 1850 and 1860 and then there was the uh, kansas Um, I grew up in Missouri and Kansas allowed homesteading was a free state in the 1870s and 1890s. And there were probably 30,000 blacks who uh, came to homestead in Kansas. And Mm. then Oklahoma also had homesteading. But uh, at the turn of the century, there were uh, and I'm I'm referring to many rivers to cross. Doctor Gates, Doctor Henry Louis Gates. There were nine million African Americans uh, in the United States at the turn of the century, and seven million lived in the South. And dividing the migration between the uh, the two periods, there was the early period that's said to be the rural people escaping um, the mm-hmm. rural South. Uh, 1916 to about 1930. And then there was a second phase, and that was 1940 to 1970. Mm-hmm. And during that period, six million um, left the uh, the South. My, my, I, and I was part of it. My family left in um, 19... My mother and father left in 1950. And my sisters and I were born in the 50s in uh, Missouri. And so we were first generation born, uh, as great migration generation.
3: Well, and, and so I know that you have this personal story, uh, your family has roots in Alabama, Louisiana, uh, and you came to Columbia, Missouri, if I'm not mistaken, uh, as you just mentioned, uh, and, and, why did your family choose the Midwest? Why did they choose Missouri? Uh, and and what kind of traditions, food traditions in particular, did they bring with them? You
2: know, it's interesting. I look. Uh, my family came five generations from um, Mobile, Alabama, the Gulf Coast, and New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And uh, right, at the, if you look at the map, um, and I I have it on my on my website, so people who really want to see that trans you can kind of see where people came from that part went up the middle of the country and it's like a direct route you could go uh, up to chicago missouri and you see the branching off mm-hmm. uh my parents were both were five generations of college graduates but they decided they didn't want to raise their children in the mid in the South, in the segregated South. And my right. dad looked, he looked for the furthest north where he would be hired. He was a uh, Tuskegee graduate and he looked for furthest north and that was Poplar Bluff, Missouri. And my son teases me because it's, it's <laughs> this little town very close to the boot heel, which is where the little boot, Kick boot of Missouri kicks into Arkansas, so it mm-hmm. very close to Memphis, very close to Arkansas, but it was Missouri, and my parents, my dad accepted that job, married my mother. My mother was a had gone to Fisk, where her her father and grandfather had gone to Meharry. She had gone to Fisk and then transferred when her father died to Florida AM. and M, and she had just graduated, and. They got married and moved right then to Poplar Bluff, Missouri. And they were there for two years and then moved uh, to Dalton, Missouri, which is northern, near Iowa, north of Kansas City, where dad was the last principal of a a black high school. Um, uh, And when that closed, they moved to Columbia, Missouri.
3: Right. And so, you know, what what I'm hearing you talk about is, um, you know, a history of two things. Um, one is a family that, uh, is, you know, middle-class college educated, uh, a story that we don't often hear about, um, you know, the middle class, the rise of the, of the middle class of, of African Americans across the country. Um, and that desire to leave the segregated South for a place that would have better opportunity. And in this case for you, it would be Missouri. Um, but, you know, I'm also hearing, you know, that this story of it's a mid 20th century story, one that we don't necessarily hear a lot about as well. We do hear about it in the context of segregation, but I can say from my own personal experience in Ohio, so much of, of our sort of, when we look at African American migration, it is very, um, focused on, uh, the escape of slaves um, you know, uh, it, around the civil war period and the underground railroad from Cincinnati all the way up to Lake Erie to the, you know, to escape to Canada. And so the, we we're very focused on that in, in Ohio. Um, but you know, I'm curious to, to focus this back a little bit more on, on food. Cause that's what we're talking about here is when you bring these different food ways, you're talking about, you know, a migration from the South into the Midwest. Um, what kind of um things, what kind of traditions did your family bring uh from uh from the Gulf Coast into a place like Missouri, which may not have had the same things on hand?
2: Right. My my uh, my grandmother used to joke um who's who's remained in Missouri, who would come and live with us for a school year or whatever to help my mother and father take care of the kids. But she would say that, um, we were growing up Southern in the Midwest mm-hmm. and they, they insisted that we, uh, appreciate the dishes that were our collective dishes from the Gulf coast. Um, and for, for our family, that was gumbo and that was red beans and rice. And that was, um, uh, really delicious um, seafood dishes that were very difficult to get in, in sure. landlocked um, Missouri. We ate um, catfish and some of the recipes that maybe they would have used for red snapper or other white fish. My mother used catfish to make that. and mm-hmm. um, But otherwise, it was very difficult. Now, on the other hand, my mother and father had never had chili, chili con carne. And when I went to grade school, to elementary school, um, we came home and asked and my mother learned to make it for us. And uh the way it was served in my school cafeteria, it was served with peanut butter sandwiches. That was the the menu, which I, right. a lot of people <laughs> haven't heard that combination. And so my mother made it with peanut butter sandwiches because that's what we taught her. Because it was an exchange, we were teaching her Midwestern food, and she was. They were insisting that we learn the the Southern food, and so uh, to this day, you know, that's the dish that that we
3: have peanut butter when we make chili at home. So, uh, how did how did your family get things like shrimp up to Missouri? I remember you telling me a story that I'd love <laughs> you to share with our listeners, which right. I think is really. Really interesting, when my elegant little grandmother, uh,
2: my paternal grandmother, who was uh, when she died, she was the last living Spellman graduate, and she would come up in suits. She and my grandfather would be fully dressed on the train, the train ride from Mobile uh to St. Louis, and then we would pick them up in St. Louis and drive to Columbia. But when they would come up, um, they would bring an ice chest sometimes two ice chests they would replace some of the luggage with an ice chest filled with gulf shrimp and oysters and all and and red snapper and um all of the dishes that my parents were just missed so much from their upbringing so um, i can remember now i can still see myself as a little girl how excited my parents were to have this you know pull out of the ice and see real shrimp that was delicious
3: <laughs> i could i could imagine how excited they they would be because you know food and that's why i love having conversations like this because it reminds us that that food is so much more than just nourishment. It's a nourishment for the soul, right? It is it is a way in which people connect to their past, they pass that on to the next generation. Um, and and that story, I think, is is just such an incredible snapshot of a time and a place and and the role of food um in in America at, at that time. Um, I, I wanna ask you a little bit. Um, you know, your story is very much uh, an interesting vignette of, you know, sort of the larger um, uh, history of African-American migration into the Midwest. Um, but when we think, and again, I'm looking at this through kind of my little corner of the Midwest, uh, which is a little bit more industrial, but, you know, we see... Um, it, you know, African-Americans settling in in urban communities like a Cleveland or Detroit or Chicago, but also in more rural areas as well. Um, Maybe, it, could you maybe tell us a little bit about how food may differ, if it does, between African-Americans that may have settled in an urban center in the Midwest versus uh, a more rural um, community uh, in, throughout the Midwest? Well, there
2: are a couple of things there. You know, one of them is that um, what what you're speaking of and what you learned about and what you saw in school or in your textbooks or in the um, um, kind of the advertising things that were omitted or edited from what was mm-hmm. taught about black people. Uh, in my textbooks, I didn't see these kinds of things that were the middle class blacks. 10% of the population was middle class who had a different, uh, who perhaps had a, you know, the different background in terms of, of menus and whatever. So there was one story that was pretty much told during that time period in all of the textbooks, all of, there was nothing on television. You know, there were no black people on television that time, um. Uh, so there was the one lady who would kick in the Jackie Gleason show and she was one oh, of yes. the dancers. And that was the only black person. We would all gather to watch and try to pick her out among the dancers. But so the dishes that we were able, uh, for one thing, it depended on what region that you went to. And right. we visit, vis- visited my cousins in Chicago at a big, big family in Chicago at that time, which is probably why I think I continued my grade migration to come to Chicago, but we would come to visit. And the dishes were traditionally all over the Midwest, uh, Southern dishes that people were adapting based on what was available. I'm a big cookbook collector and I collect the community cookbooks of the time.
3: I I love community cookbooks. They tell such a good story.
2: Yeah, they really do. They tell the they tell the story of um somebody was describing it as stirring the um family memory and loss into recipes. And wow. and that's really, you know, a community cookbook. So, uh, for instance, I have a, you know, there were um big community cookbooks of of blacks, of African Americans who had migrated in Montana making dishes that were Southern dishes making, uh, you know, dishes that we talk about greens, macaroni and cheese, sweet potatoes, um, fried chicken dishes that were brought from a a collective kind of, um, uh, recipe, uh, memory and Mm -hmm. bringing those to wherever they would go. And a lot of, um, Almost any place that you would go where there was an African-American population, these dishes survived because that's how they were brought up. These southern recipes were brought up to the Midwest from uh, formerly enslaved who came north.
3: Right. And and um, can you give an example maybe of, of how one of those dishes could have been adapted to Midwest because maybe there's uh, not... Uh, a specific ingredient that could be available and and they managed to adapt these southern food ways to midwestern resources right and
2: and also with ingredients yeah that were available, yeah. for instance, um hot sauce it was very difficult to find, and the only one that that most people could find a lot of people could find, especially in smaller. Uh, Midwestern communities was Tabasco and that's Mm -hmm. not a hot sauce that African American people appreciate. Um, It's, there's a lot of, there's some racism involved with it, but there's also, uh, there are a lot of other ones that are um, people had grown up with, but everybody had Tabasco because that's what was available. And it's the same with grits. Um, It's the same with uh, sausages The the um, smoked sausages that we used to have my grandmother made in mobile it was um and it wasn't andouille that was not the gulf coast sausage they used it was a smoked sausage that was handmade along the gulf coast that tasted more like smoked chorizo from spain oh. and in fact when i replace it now i use the smoked chorizo instead of um the andouille or anything because it's the most flavorful it tastes the most the same texture the same flavor and whatever but we used to have to use any kind of sausage we could find if we were lucky enough to find italian sausage great if not but any sausage would do and um so my mother would use that my mother i remember the saddest looking shrimp that my mother would buy (laughs) at the at the AMP for shrimp creole, you know, and then the canned beans that she would buy or the dried beans that she would bring up when they would go down to visit. And then they would, they would use that and share it with each other. Whenever Mm -hmm. anybody went on a trip South, the the trunk would come back filled with, you know, the dried beans and filled with uh, spices filled with, um, um, you know any kind of spice that was very difficult to find here
3: so um well that's one that's certainly one way to both preserve and adapt uh right. these rec- these recipes that were carried on um i would be remiss if i didn't ask you a little bit about uh, Frida Denight, who I know you're writing a book about, and you know, she was a, the a food editor at Ebony Magazine, which, you know, pretty much everyone is familiar with Ebony. Um, she grew up in the Midwest as well. Um, and she also wrote cookbooks. So I, if you could just spend a few minutes telling our listeners about Frida Denight as an African American Midwestern woman, um, and how she shaped American, uh, African American food culture and identity through some of her cookbooks. What I and it was really one basic cookbook,
2: uh, a date with a mm-hmm. dish that became the ebony cookbook, but it was the one her one giant piece of work, and the only one that has uh there are some reproductions now they're all but the only the original has this one chapter of amazing uh recipes that were collected from specific families uh from the south but um Frida, what I loved about her and what attracted, she knew, my grandmothers both knew her. Um, she would travel wow. and she was an elegant club woman. And she grew up in Topeka, Kansas. Her father had been a porter who passed away. Or, she, I'm sorry, she was born in Topeka. Her father had been a porter. And she was, um, according to some, there are different sort of uh, time frames. <coughs> Uh, but when she was about two, and then she and her mother and sister moved to South Dakota. Mm. And that's that's where um, some say family friends, others say uncle. And it was her uncle who was from Chicago, was a caterer. And so she moved there and as a young girl would uh, learn from them. But she came from a very, very middle class family. She integrated everything she ever knew. So I, as a young girl, I identified with her because my sisters and I integrated our schools and I identified Mm. with what it felt like to be the only black in a white environment. And that's what she had. Um, She integrated and she was the only black in her school in in, uh, South Dakota and then in college and whatever. But what she did, she appreciated so much the inheritance. can you imagine in South Dakota, the southern foods that her right. uh, uncle, her uncle, catered? And um she learned to make those and um and those are the dishes that she uh, she began appreciating. And then she married a jazz musician. she and um traveled, moved to New York. I, I go when I'm in Manhattan, she's up uh, in Harlem, and uh, I go and stand in front of the apartment, the apartment building still standing where she used to live, Wow! and just to breathe the air and see what she had, but she moved to Manhattan, and then they traveled to um, Europe, uh, and, and would live for months at a time, while her husband was a musician. At Renee tonight, and so she would go and spend. So she was able to pick up on all the different nuances of recipes and food, and always appreciated her native, our cultural cuisine more than than ever, more than any of them. And, and did uh, did
3: if I am mm-hmm. recalling correctly, didn't you? Didn't I think it was her? Maybe I'm wrong, but. Wasn't it uh, Frida DeNight who um, put forth the cookbook? I think in the in the nineteen forties um, of um, basically uh, aiming at getting uh, young African American children into the kitchen. Was that was that her? She wrote a book
2: for everybody. Uh, it wasn't for children, but it was. She wrote a book in nineteen forty eight called "A Date with the Dish," and what she after all this international exposure and travel and and whatever, she uh, the subtitle was by us for us. There. And it is. She talk- yeah. yeah. She talks about how this is this is food by uh, by us as black people for our black families. At the time there were, you know, lots of books that were uh caricatures, the Aunt Jemima kind of caricature mm-hmm. of black cooks. And this she was really underlining the fact that this was by us um with um a seriousness and with a, an appreciation for our culture. And it's for us and for us to pass down. And she traveled around the country, and with, that was her message. She'd speak to women's groups. She'd speak to uh, cultural groups. And she would talk about the importance of us appreciating our recipes and passing them down. One of the things I remember my grandmother wrote down that she had said was that um, when, we lose, when we skip one generation of not passing it down, the nuances of that recipe are lost forever.
3: That's, and that's
2: so the, true. Yes, that's the grandmother saying. Okay, smell this when it gets to just this temperature, or when the bread gets just this puffy. That's when you then deflate it and roll it. You know, those are the things that you really have to each generation pass down. And, and that's and what I think. She,
3: mm-hmm. That that is, I think, what so many groups, what regardless of your you know ethnic, uh, racial heritage. Right. We we all feel that sentiment of culture being passed down through food, um, and that's exactly what you're describing here. Right,
2: right. And the one thing that was even made it more important, made it more important to her, made it more makes it more important to me is that in many ways that was all that we had in relationship to what was what would be passed down. We had lost our uh, our names, our religion, our place of, of birth, our family. We had lost everything we shared as a people. And these recipes that we all from survival in in a strange land made, you know, based on a lot of times throwaway dishes are based on those kinds were the things that we all
3: shared. And that Go made ahead. it even more important. Well that's a beautiful place to to end our conversation, Donna. Uh, a way that, that food has retained, it's been the the crux of the African American identity um, out of, uh, you know, in very difficult um circumstances. The one thing that Um, at least as you're describing it, food being the the common denominator of uh, creating a common heritage and narrative for for African-Americans across the country, including those that migrated to the Midwest. We'll be right back after a short break.
1: I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Y Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including Eleven Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com.
3: Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. I want to bring back our last guest, Donna Pierce, to help us connect the African-American community with the Appalachian community and how both came to the Midwest. Donna, I know that uh, oftentimes uh, when we think about uh, African-American migration, we don't often think that... uh, Appalachian communities uh, overlap with African-American communities. Maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, that particular community uh, and the foodways it brought into the Midwest. I was on a panel at Southern
2: Foodways several years ago and introduced the poet, um, Frank X. Walker and he he has a poetry book. he's a professor now in Kentucky, but he has a poetry book called Alaia and um, it was the first time I'd heard that and and as I understand it, he is the person who um, who brought that word to us and it's the idea that that we don't once again, in, in our books and in our studies, learn about all, of course, there were, were African-Americans in the Appalachian regions. And of course, it's part of the, uh, it was part of the, uh, the culture there, the food waste there and the mi- migration there. And, and, um, I, I had a list of some of the things that are shared in terms of food waste, but, uh, pickling and the canning, uh, the food is that, my experience, that's from migrants from that area, um, ha- would be not as um, spicy as the food, and it, you know that comes from the different areas when people migrate from where my family came from. Very, very spicy, hot food, and here not so much. Sometimes I know that there's a, a big discussion about do Black people eat cornbread with sugar. And very much so, yes, all over the South. But I do know Blacks from um Afrolacia, quote, hand quote, um, that do not. And I know people whose families came from that, some of the regions of Kentucky and of the Appalachians who did not add sugar to their um, to their cornbread. Uh, molasses, important to baking and um important to a lot of glazing of meats and sauerkraut, um, dried beans, but there are, there's quite a bit of shared culture and food ways. And there's quite a bit of, uh, black people that you see from it's not the caricature that we learned mm-hmm. in our school books
3: well that's i think it's important to note that and this is again what this show is all about is exposing folks to things that they may have not recognized or known about uh and i know even growing up so close to uh parts of, of appalachia um as the three rivers meet in ohio west virginia and and pennsylvania uh, i didn't necessarily um uh, associate uh, Black America with Appalachian America, uh, and so I appreciate you sharing that uh, with me and with our with our listeners.
2: I think we're at a time now where we're getting a different standard of inclusion, and we're getting a better understanding of you know historical events and the people who shaped them, and the people who uh, who contributed. So I, I'm really happy for that.
3: Our next guest is going to take a deeper dive into Appalachian migration and its surprising impact on Midwestern foodways. Bruce Craig is Professor Emeritus in History at Roosevelt University in Chicago. He is the editor of the Heartland Foodways book series for the University of Illinois Press and is the author of a number of books related to food, including Man Bites Dog, Hot Dog Culture in America. Bruce, we're happy to have you on the show.
4: Oh, thank you for allowing me to speak.
3: Uh, hey, that's what we're here for, right? We're, we're, we're a radio show. We're all about speaking.
4: <laughs> good, good.
3: And, and today we're going to speak about Appalachian culture. Now, I do want to ask you, is it Appalachian or Appalachian to you in, in your view?
4: Uh, either. I've heard it both ways. And I, I myself say Appalachian.
3: As as do I, but I know some say Appalachian, and it's it's a tomato tomato when it when it comes to this sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but fig- yeah, yeah. figured I'd ask. So yep. that's what we're going to be talking about today: um, the uh, impact and, and influence of uh, Appalachian mm-hmm. Appalachian migration uh, and uh, into the Midwest. So, um, Bruce, maybe we can start off by you giving us some insight into Appalachian culture. Uh, Many who came from that region of the country had their own uh, individual immigrant stories from Europe. So what were these specific influences?
4: Well, um, Appalachian means the hill and mountain country to the west of the original coastal settlements uh, in the United States by Europeans. So uh, they're varied the people who moved into the back country. But typically, when we think of Appalachians, we think of Scotch-Irish and Irish and uh, settlers from New England who moved down there. Um, Mm -hmm. For example, uh, Abraham Lincoln's family, which originated in Massachusetts and then moved down to Virginia. And then, like Abraham Lincoln's father, Kentucky, Indiana, Illinois. So uh, it's varied. But right. I think I think in terms of folk culture, and you'll need to talk to the folklorists about this. We tend sure. to think of the uh, North British Scotch Irish.
0: Hmm.
3: And and what kind of food did these groups bring, or as far as um, you know, their specific uh, original immigrant culture, and how that influenced uh, Appalachian food?
4: Right. Well, as people moved into the backcountry, they found um, uh, food possibilities, raising food more difficult because they're in mountains and uh, heavily wooded areas. And if you think about what the late 18th and 19th centuries were, they had to cut wood, cut forests and then plant their fields. So what planted best was corn and what they could uh, raise most easily were uh, pigs. So the culture is generally associated with what we call hog and hominy culture. Now that's Southern in general, but I think, uh, uh, Appalachian food is, uh, is, is very much like that. Plus a lot of wild foods. Um, one of the classic dishes is called Brunswick stew. Uh, and it's, that's called right. Burg- burgoo to the West. And, uh, there are other names for it. Smith and over is another one. Um, and that that comes from the hunting culture that you'd find in the upcountry in these wooded areas. Uh, and mm-hmm. Brunswick stew typically has squirrel in it, along with anything Yum. else you could find. Yeah. So <laughs> right, So well- that's that, that's the kind of food you'll find: um, uh, uh, biscuits, cornbread, corn-based products, hominy, of course, and mm-hmm. uh, lots of pigs.
3: Well. I- so we have a good idea of kind of the, the origin story, maybe at least, uh, ethnically from an immigrant standpoint of, you know, where the roots of those that were in Appalachia, um, originate. Uh, you've given us a little bit of a taste of what we could find in Appalachian food. We're going to dig into that deeper in a second. But before we get there, um, I'm curious for you to, to talk a little bit about how, and why and when uh, these individuals started leaving Appalachian, coming into the Midwest?
4: Yeah. Uh, well, they're always looking for land. The story of America is land hunger. And, Indeed. Uh, yes. And, and what they did to the land and often just catastrophic effects. Um, it's an ongo- that's an ongoing thing, by the way, with the Midwest flooding and lots of problems uh, with climate change. Uh, so they, they're looking for better land. Uh, a good example is Abraham Lincoln's family. His father, mm-hmm. uh, moved to Kentucky where they had great difficulty with, uh, land ownership and, uh, the, the political pro- the, uh, documentation of land who owned it and what it was complete chaos. Mm. He was so disgusted. Plus he didn't like slavery that he moved to Indiana. So, uh, And he cut the forest and built a little log cabin and then heard didn't do very well and then heard that the land in Illinois, central Illinois, uh, was much better. It was the prairie. And he moved there and eventually settled in a place called Coles County, which is in central Illinois. So that's that's why people moved. Uh, It's why the Midwest was settled. People from the New England states, New York, where the land was getting worse where you couldn't make a profit from raising wheat, which is the prime uh, grain that they wanted, they moved west. And as when the Midwest opened after the Revolutionary War, that's when people began flooding down there and in waves on and on. Uh, I should mention that we immigrants also, newer immigrants, found that the Midwest or heard that the Midwest was really rich land and in particular mm-hmm. Germans, there's a heavy German influence in the early Midwest, which remains in food waste to this day. Sure. And, and we,
3: we are gonna ha- we're going we're gonna to talk to somebody explicitly about German and Germanic influences on a different episode. Um, yeah. But I do know, I think this is important in this context as well, though, to talk a little bit, I think, mm-hmm. about the German triangle. Is, is that where you're going with this?
4: Well, yeah, uh I was going to talk about the differences between German farmers and the uh native native I put that in parenthesis native because they're not native Americans. Um English and uh Anglo-Scotch, Scotch-Irish.
3: Uh, that centers. that's important. That's important to this conversation because as you mentioned, those are the you know, ethnic groups so to speak, the immigrant groups that uh you know, were most frequently associated with the Appalachian communities that we're talking about. So um, I'm all ears.
4: Yeah. Uh, well, they moved through down the river valleys, uh, Germans, and so did the people from Appalachia. Uh, so let me start with the migration route. The Ohio Valley was the highway by which people came from the back country in Appalachia down into the Midwest. So the Midwest states like Indiana. And Illinois were settled from the bottom up at first. That's where most of the population was. And uh, it's where the National Road, which was begun early on in the 19th century, um, it's now called Route 40, ran th- right through the mm-hmm. middle of central Illinois over to Missouri. So uh, uh, it was. it's because there was a lot of commerce running down from Pittsburgh down through What you can think of as Appalachia, West Virginia, and Western Virginia, and such, and uh, Kentucky, and down to down to New Orleans, so that's the route they took, and uh, the land was fertile on either side. Southern Ohio was settled that way. Places like Marietta, Ohio, which became an important, yes, and and then Cincinnati, which is an early and the leading meat producing city in America before Chicago and and a, a, a and a whole lot of others uh moved down that way germans came down that route also and these were early germans in the 19th, late 18th century uh the big german migration began around 1850 and they could take uh either the ohio or the other overland routes uh which since northern part of the of the midwest was now being settled was settled uh, along the Great Lakes and uh, other inland routes, and they settled in the interior of the Midwest in very great numbers mm-hmm.
3: so interesting and and so you you're talking a little bit about uh how these communities um got there and and their their agricultural practices as well and so I want to come back to um uh Appalachian foods specifically, um, and you mentioned Virgo and Brunswick stew and these sort of things, but can you maybe give us a a few more examples of, uh, maybe iconic, uh, dishes that are associated with Appalachian food?
4: Well, uh, biscuits, um, biscuits and red-eye gravy. If this sounds southern to you.
3: What is, what is red-eye gravy? Red-eye gravy
4: is from pork, uh, the drippings for pork pork chops. It uh uh rather than yeah, it's more pork than beef. Uh salt pork, for example.
3: Right. Uh, Going uh, back uh, directly to what you were saying before about you know the ability for them to raise uh hogs in particular.
4: Yeah. Uh, well, uh because pigs are so smart and adaptable, they can live anywhere. And typically, um you would just allow your pigs to forage in the woods around your settlement and uh then harvest them mm-hmm. in December when which is the standard slaughter time and then preserve uh lots of it over the winter uh this in fact is was done until mm, the middle of the last century into the 1950s and I know families mm. Who did it? And occasionally you'll find people who still do. But that was what farm life was like. Pig slaughter in December, and you put up Mm -hmm. meat, you make uh, sausages, uh, you put them in crocks, cover them with lard, and uh, they'll keep over the winter. Uh, Also, Mm -hmm. smoked hams. Virginia is famous for those, as you know, but that was done. It was done everywhere. And so, they uh, uh 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 ate everything lard uh lard for baking and then uh, frying lard was common in fact uh lard is the uh shortening and grease cooking grease of choice in in the south uh in fact all over america but especially the south and appalachia uh they ate uh, and ate a lot of wild game uh, for example Raccoon and possum mm-hmm. were common and uh, and s- still are in the early days when there were still bison left bison, uh venison mm-hmm. uh for meats, uh, a lot of wild berries and uh and other plants, Jerusalem artichokes for example, dandelion greens, um uh uh and and, and mushrooms, naturally. But right, that culture of gathering foods uh, still exists to some degree in uh, rural America, in the rural parts of Illinois, and certainly in Appalachia. And there are just a great number. Well, it's, of, it's it- There are a great number of wild plants that 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 they ate.
3: Right. Well, it sounds like the, the Appalachian foodways uh that, that ultimately were transferred into to the Midwest were very informed by um, you know, really making the most of and being resourceful with what's yes. potentially at hand. And yes. then also making sure that that there was not waste. I mean, it sounds like they're really utilizing everything that they can, you know, get their hands on and they're not going to waste any aspect of something that may be able to be consumed. Um, and because of you know uh frankly the the economic situation uh, you know in in Appalachia and, and I'm sure um that also informed their their views as as Appalachians migrated west for for land but also you know part of that being hopeful for for newer economic opportunity too
4: yes exactly um uh, uh and this there's a bifurcation of uh, foodways between northerners and uh, people who, and moneyed people who were better, richer farmers and the very poor. And that remained mm-hmm. until world war two. In fact, it still remains for some de- to some degree, as you know, mm-hmm. is the difference sure. between uh, what poor folks eat and what uh, the people with money eat. Uh, so the, the poor I'm speaking to you from southern Illinois which is where uh this the uh southern foodways the appalachian foodways and northern foodways meet. Uh it's the mid-south really. And the poor people down here ate a lot of catfish and made their ah, living yes. by by getting catfish out of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers which is where we are in a in a kind of a basin between the two of them. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's common everywhere as uh, Appalachian people spread out toward the West. So you're right. Uh, uh, Preserving as much food as possible. Um, Many of them are hungry. uh, In hard times, they were then, and this still exists now.
3: Right. Very interesting, and this is why I'm so fascinated and wanted to make sure that you know, we covered an area that maybe not a lot of people talk about, um, not only domestic migration and its impacts on, uh, you know, sort of the evolution of regional foodways across the United States, but but particularly Appalachian culture and food, which, you know, is, is oftentimes overlooked. Um, but I, I want to ask you one final question, because I know in some of our previous conversations, you told me about a cookbook that actually focused on this Appalachian food uh, in part of the Midwest. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that cookbook and, and what we could find in it if we could get our hands on it.
4: Right. Well, there was a the only historic cookbook for that I know of in this part of the country, and I'm talking again about Southern Illinois, which is really interesting, is written by um, Helen Walker Linzenmayer, and uh it was published in nineteen seventy six and republished um it called Cook- cooking plain illinois country style uh by southern illinois mm-hmm. university press it's not- a, it's not expensive you can get it on mm-hmm. online uh i did a, a new edition of it and put a forward in uh and this this is kind of a family history of uh the walker family in Against Southern Illinois, which is a mixture of Appalachian, Anglo, and German. So in it, you'll find fried squirrel, squirrel stew, lots of wild greens and what to make of them, but also with Lebkuchen and Pfeffernuss. What, is, what are German, either
3: of those things?
4: <laughs> well, there, wherever you find German communities, and there are plenty of them around here, we're near St. Louis, which and there are German settlements which are still pretty German. Whenever you look at their cookbooks, those are two paradigmatic foods that you'll find, uh, baked goods, Lebkuchen, which is uh, rolled out and put in a press. It's a cookie. And Pfeffernus, which is a kind of cookie also, both made for holidays. And those are, they're there. And so they're in Helen Walker Linsenmeyer's book as well. This is a fascinating book. And I urge uh readers to have a look at it uh she was a very fine cookbook writer if you want a a snapshot of what uh a not often looked at part of the country looks like
3: well that's well that's exactly what we're trying to do on this show is bring uh you know a different narrative a different perspective Uh, and, um, you know, expose listeners to things that they may have not necessarily thought about, heard about, read about, or listened about, uh, you know, in in another context. So, um, Bruce Craig, I'm very thankful for you uh, joining us today and sharing your insights and your expertise on this little uh, known area of uh, Appalachian foodways in the Midwest. Thank you. Thank you.